What we want our students to be able to do is to describe it in such a way that if Nietzsche were sitting in the room, he'd say, oh yeah, you guys, that's about right. So we mailed out some symposia uh, to, the incoming, <laughs> to the incoming students, and that, that was a bad decision. Hey, you're listening to Opening Question, a podcast of the Tory Honors College here at Biola University. I am Ellie Martin, and I am here with Dr. Paul Spears, our director. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Paul. And I'm also here with Dr. Fred Sanders, one of our faculty members. Hello. Um, well, thanks for joining me today, guys. I, I have a question for you today, but before I ask the question, I wanted to chat a little bit about um, our sliver of the great books tradition and the way that we do that with lots of Bible and theology, right? So we've got a ton of Bible and theology, way more than other great books programs. Um, so when students come to Biola and to Tori, that's one of the things they're really excited about that they get to read. Um, and then in addition to the usual suspects in the great books tradition, you've got, you know, Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare, Dante, it kind of goes on and on. These are the, the books that you typically read in Tori. Um, but then we've got some other books that we read that tend to surprise students when they encounter them on the book list. Um, the ones that jump to mind right away are Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, Plato's Symposium, um, Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, and, and these books tend to freak students out a little bit. So <laughs> the question that I want to ask you guys today is, how did Nietzsche make the final cut? And by that, I mean, why do we read a book like Nietzsche or, or Symposium or Ovid's Metamorphosis that seems to be proposing things that are pretty antithetical to the worldview that we subscribe to? Yeah, and I, I do think probably Nietzsche is a, a, a more interesting question in the sense that the, the classics, the pagan classics, Greco-Roman antiquity, they've got a certain set of problems with them that really ride along with that ancient culture that we're investigating. Like Everyone's going to have that problem, and it's exacerbated by the fact that it's freshman first semester who <laughs> yeah, run into so Plato's Symposium, and uh, I guess it's second semester for Ovid's Metamorphoses, but it's still first-year students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they do kind of come away a little shocked with like, wait, I thought I was going to a program with a certain, what, way of being? And how did they sneak that in? And do, do other people know that they're reading these texts? So could you guys tell me really quickly, like, what is freaky to students in Symposium, Metamorphosis, and then Genealogy of Morals? Really fast. Well, Symposium uh, is a, a very high and abstract discussion of love, um, but you get there through the Athenian uh, pederastic educational tradition. So there's uh, really um, male, uh, homosexual love, uh, cross-generational. And that is just, you know, that's ancient Greece, that's Athens for you, and that is the raw material uh, out of which the dialogue is developed. Right, but it's not clear in the dialogue that it's a good but it is the thing that students encounter first and they're they really struggle to wrestle with um what plato is trying to get at in terms of the propriety of that behavior is it is he advocating it at first so so part of it is what's what is going on is too it's teaching the students to read better and all they do is see the advocate the 
group of people advocating for that and they think is this is this what this whole thing is about so they can get lost pretty quickly in that one problem yeah tell me paul tell me about ovid's metamorphosis and what the problem is there that students encounter <sighs> boy there's a lot of things they encounter so so part of it is is just their sensibilities about the nature why is he talking about assault why is he talking about all kinds of different things that are going on that how could how could anything uh, or how could anyone seemingly have these discussions in a way that could be fruitful they mm -hmm. they are always thought of as bad um why would we have this conversation um so that because they, in in ovid in particular there's a lot of stories about sexual assault right and right. and yeah. students just think there's nothing at all can come out of this that is good and so how do i wrestle with this what do i how do i um it really is a matter of perception they cannot get beyond that and they don't know what to think because it seems so present it's so in the forefront you can't almost turn away from it intellectually yeah. and then you're like there's there's no redemption there there can't be and and so part of it is teaching them to like stop and say okay what might be going on that um the author is trying to get me to think about that is beyond the mere first blush there. Yeah. And Fred, uh, what's going on in Genealogy of Morals with Nietzsche? Yeah, well, uh, Genealogy of Morals, Nietzsche is really clear that he is against Christianity. He is setting out to take it down and undermine it. So that's why I say it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it is very different than, than Symposium and Metamorphosis. And students encounter it much later, which is also interesting. Yes. Yes, and, and we have, a, as a Christian Great Books program, we have a distinct kind of problem with it. Everyone teaching classics at the undergrad level um, has problems with Symposium and especially with Ovid. Um, every now and then a year will go by when there's not a major news story in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about Ovid offending somebody. Mm -hmm. um, but like that's not some like parochial Christian concern. That's right. just Ovid is offensive. Right, so that makes Nietzsche unique to us because he's doing something particularly anti-Christian and atheistic, and of course we have we have a problem with that. Okay, so then we've got these three texts on the table. We've got Plato's Symposium, Pederasty, um, Ovid's Metamorphosis, Sexual Assault, and then Genealogy of Morals, which is um, atheistic, and that's coming from a more philosophical assault on your you know psyche. Um, so why why did these make the cut? Why do we read them? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's worth saying, especially with regard to Nietzsche, that we're not just doing opposition research. You know, there, there could be a temptation to say, oh, um, our students will go out and face these arguments later. So let's make sure to study the bad guys here in a safe environment um, where we can know their arguments in order to beat them. That is certainly a thing worth doing. Um, but our pedagogy is not especially well designed for that because we're going to actually read, you know, assign the entire text, read it and then hold each other accountable for reading it very well and sympathetically, and then discussing it in such a way that the author's ideas are driving our discussion. Right, right, because the temptation is to make a straw man out of this and already be dismissing Nietzsche when you start the conversation. But what we want our students to be able to do is to describe it in such a way that if Nietzsche were sitting in the room, he'd say, oh yeah, you guys, that's about right. And then, and then the real, what? critique if we have one uh can then move forward and the problem is is that we're too quick to want to 
oftentimes too quick to want to dismiss something when we don't really understand what we're dismissing. There's just a gut reaction. And it's like, well, that's got to be bad. He doesn't like Jesus. Okay, that's just wrong then. Like, well, what is it about his problem? What is the problem that he's bringing to the forefront that you might need to contend with? Exactly. I mean, that that's the question that students ask is why do we why do we bother reading with this when it's so diametrically opposed to what we believe in? And like you said, Fred, if it's not just about well, we need to know this now so that if anybody ever comes asking, this is the answer that we have. So if it's if it's not that, and, and we do read it, what what you were saying, Paul, can you say a little bit more about it? Like, why, why do we need to give Nietzsche the time of day, really? So I... So I guess the, the first thing I'd want to say is it's not just Nietzsche or, or Ovid or Symposium that we want to give the time of day to. It's actually we want to give the time of day to all of these texts. It doesn't really matter which one we're reading because we want to read it with the same kind of rigor that we read every text. So we want to actually get at the arguments. We actually really want to understand what the critiques are. We want to really see where the issues lie and we don't want to overly simplify them. And that takes a real kind of rigor and intentionality that we expect them to bring not only with Nietzsche, but with every text, with the gospel of John. And, and so some of that is to say, the way in which you read Nietzsche should be in one way, the way in which you read the gospel of John. That is, we want you to really understand the arguments. We really want you to understand what's at play here. And we really want you to understand what the outcomes, in terms of what the author's intentions are, how they emerge. Ooh, reading Nietzsche like reading the Gospel of John. That's that's pretty scintillating, Paul. That's what I'm here for, scintillating. <laughs> but it is, but I think that's what it means to read well, right? Mm. It, it isn't to just dismiss out of hand um, a text because you believe that it's either going to be, or, or actually then adopt out of hand a text that you believe you understand and then say, no, 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 I already know what's going on here, which is part of the danger when you get to any of these texts, right? And what I think we're working really hard to do is disabuse our students of the notion that they actually understand what they're going in to read. And, mm -hmm. th and often they'll do that with a, a biblical text in a way that's antithetical to the, what is actually good for them. And it's, in the same way when they get to Nietzsche, they'll dismiss one and they'll adopt the other, but they won't know why. I think one of the notions that students come to Tori with is the idea that if you read a text, that means you automatically agree with it. Like just by, just by reading it, just by giving it, like we said, the time of day, um, that means you're condoning it just because you're interacting with it. And so I think that's why symposium hits them really hard. Because what did you say that was, Fred, like week six or I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's so early. And so, you know, so far they've been having a good time reading Homer and some tragedies. And have they read? That's, yeah, that's pretty much where they are. Um, a little bit of Plato at yeah. this point. One, one little um, Plato dialogue and then boom, right into symposium. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, why, why would you assign this? And when they say that they mean why why are you saying it's okay mm -hmm. for what's in this book to be like like why why are we even talking about it why are you disabusing my sensibilities yeah yeah and and we're over here saying like no there's actually something to learn from this even like work through the things we disagree with and find what we can find there was a time several years ago where I, I think in the office we had built up a surplus of desk copies of all sorts of books and so we decided you know what would be fun this year when we admit new students let's mail them a book and just say like here's 
here's a down payment on your curriculum. This is one of the things you're going to be reading. And we happen to have a lot of uh, single copies of Symposium from a special class we'd done, little paperbacks of just the Symposium. Oh, no. Um, not the Big Red Book of Plato, but just a, a one-off, you know, a little paperback. So we mailed out some Symposia uh, to, the incoming, <laughs> to the incoming students, and that, that was a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> I about that. Now, of course, if you're here with us and we do have a safe, responsible, structured place to read this, you know, as, as soon as you actually get into discussing the symposium, you realize, well, there's like six or seven or eight speeches in it in which the speakers disagree with each other. And Plato, as the author, has framed this all in a certain way. Um, so you can't just say, like, do you agree or disagree with the symposium? You have to say, which speaker, you know? Do you mean Alcibiades? Mm -hmm. Do you mean Socrates? Do you mean Diotima? Do you mean Aristophanes? Um, all of these points of view are being put on the table and worked out and discussed in the text itself. Right. And one of the things that's happening when you read something like Symposium is you're also getting at the different ways in which argumentation is happening. Like what each speaker holds as most important in the way in which this discussion, this dialogue is happening. And so what it enables students to do is also think, what, intellectually, forensically about what's going on, to be more detailed about it, not just to sort of go to say, oh, that seems okay. Well, that's kind of, ooh, well, that's really weird, right? And so all they're doing is quickly identifying those moments without actually understanding what uh, commitments each speaker is making. And so we oftentimes in class, one of the things you do is you press them to say, why do you think that individual is saying what he's saying. What are, what are some of the commitments that are underlying those, those speeches? And how are they different you know, from the other speeches? And then how does Ben Socrates pull that together and say, here are some things that I think y'all are doing and, and push you to think um, what, more complexly about the question. So a symposium, it, it seems like the, the situation of the dialogue, that being the the conversation about love and the pederasty, that's kind of getting in the way of of the ultimate conversation about love that's trying to be had. And students kind of have to work their way through that in order to kind of get to the good stuff of the dialogue. Yeah, and but I then, I don't yeah, want to I don't want to do any spoilers here, but um, <laughs> the symposium is announced as a conversation about love. But when you sort of uh, make your way through the speeches and get to Socrates, he says, yeah, I don't think love's a god at all. I think you're all wrong about that. I think love's just a thing that helps you get to the true highest thing, which is, surprise, beauty. Right. So so <laughs> even there, I mean, the, the entire conversation uh, is built on certain premises, which are then refuted within the dialogue by the leading intellect within it. Right, but, which is part of what's going on is when the students realize that even the theme Socratic opening question of Socrates, that that was a, what, a distraction from the true conversation that needed to happen. And they're like, wait a second, do you mean that he was tricking us from the beginning? And the answer is, yeah, he was, or at least he was distracting you from the beginning. So Plato's trying to do one thing in Symposium, and then Nietzsche is trying to do something very different. He's enigmatic in his own weird way. Um, but he at least has a very straightforward point that he's trying to make. And his point is that Christianity 
is one of the worst things that could have ever happened. Um, we need to overcome that, rise above it, and return to atheism. You know, God is dead. I know God is dead is not in genealogy of morals, but close enough. Um, so what's happening in, in genealogy of morals that's different from something that's happening in symposium that we are wanting students to see? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I, and I, I don't want to say that Nietzsche's straightforward in terms of the reading experience, because I mean, I think he's intentionally deceitful. I don't think I'm insulting him um, to say that he's not working straight with the truth. Yeah. He, he presupposes certain standards of proof and evidence at the beginning of the first uh, essay. There are three essays in Genealogy of Morals. The first one, he starts with these standards of proof and truth that he's holding you to. But by the end of the third one, he's deconstructed all of those um, and instead sort of make a, made a direct assault on the reader, sort of will against will. Um, so it, there's something fundamentally tricky about what he's doing there. Um, but, but it seems like we've already identified that some of the best books are doing exactly that. They're mm -hmm. taking the way in which you bring your preconceived notions to the table, maybe even aligning themselves, you, you know, calling you to align yourself with them and then to say, oh, so what you thought was actually true or actually the case or what you thought the project really was, this is also showing you that kind of naivete you bring to the table. And I, I don't think it means that you should be suspicious. I think that what it means is that you should be careful and that the, the, um, what, the desire you have to quickly tie something down and to move forward on your preconceived notion should be held um, in tension as you read through the text. Like, oh, I think I know what's going on now. Oh, no, I think I know what's going on now. And then you're like, get to the end. I didn't know what was going on <laughs> at all. Um, and and that's, a, that's not a bad way in which to approach books like that. Now, I should say all of this, all of this presupposes that we're dealing with a text that has a high degree of literary polish and merit, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's so as we talk about ideas or about realities that we want to confront, we're not a great ideas program or a great realities program. Like the, the method we're always following is great texts, great books. And so if someone has an important idea, but it's not expressed in a way that um, is really sort of consummately well put together and worth engaging, um, we're, we're just not going to be able to address it. I'll say, in my opinion, I may not share the whole faculty's opinion on this, in my opinion, Marxism has not generated a ton of truly excellent writing, at least when it comes directly to um, political theorizing. Mm. And so is Marxism worth taking seriously and considering? Absolutely. Communist Manifesto, uh, it's kind of not enough there. Das Kapital, uh, it's kind of too much there. Like, you know, what, <laughs> what text are we going to look at exactly? With Nietzsche, it's very clear. This is a, a remarkable literary performance uh, and, and really just an astonishing thing to have committed to writing it. It just repays constant reading. Okay. So you're kind of talking about the, the bumping up against the borders of our own pedagogy. So we are distinctly a, a great books program, meaning we have to read books and they have to be really good ones. And it's not that the communist manifesto is not an incredibly influential and important text in the history of political thought. It's just that it's kind of not that great to read <laughs> and like you don't get much out of it. It's yeah, it's just not yeah, much. How many better. ideas are there? And are you, um, as you read them, do they stimulate your thinking in certain distinctive ways? Do yeah. you think, oh, I have never considered it from that angle before? No, I mean, that's my own judgment, and I might be wrong. There are great books programs that certainly do read the Communist Manifesto and 
Uh, I, w- I would just want to know how, how good of a conversation can they have based on it that's actually engaging the text rather than the global realities touched off by the text. Which is, a, which is another temptation, right? Uh, the, the better the text is, the less temptation there is to go outside of it and bring things in. And I think if you start finding yourself doing that because you're one, you don't feel like there's enough there, that's the first way I would say. So maybe that text isn't actually great in the way in which many others are. And I think that mm. what you were saying, Fred, is that the more you return to it, the more you realize that levels of complexity, or as you like, no, you return to it again, you're like, nope, that's, that's what I had the first time. I mean, it's, it's important, but it, but it isn't doing something that is uh, causing me to reconceive of or to re-examine from a different angle uh, this conversation, this argument. I find one of the really interesting things about Nietzsche and genealogy of morals in particular is, um, you know, he's trying to do this, this world building and this political theorizing. He's doing a lot of stuff um, throughout his, all the works that he has written. Um, And when I just read Nietzsche, it's like, I don't think I agree with pretty much anything that's in here. But then there are some other texts that we read. Um, Tocqueville's Democracy in America comes to mind. Um, and Tocqueville is writing this huge account of the, well, it's not the democracy in America. And he came over in the early 1800s before the Civil War, right? He came over and, and wrote Democracy in America. Um and he's kind of giving this amazing account of, of how the American institutions work. And I agree with Tocqueville on a lot of things. But as it turns out, when you read Tocqueville, Tocqueville actually agrees with Nietzsche on a lot of things. Um, and he has some philosophies about the way that political institutions are built and should be constructed that align perfectly with Nietzsche's thought. And when you read it and you see the connections between Tocqueville and Nietzsche, you're like, oh, what do I do now? Because I like the way that Tocqueville says it, but I don't like at all the way that Nietzsche says it. But I think, in fact, they're actually saying the same thing. So what do I do with that? Yeah, there's a, <laughs> these texts are real mixed bags, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but I think that one of the things that makes um, Nietzsche valuable is that he does say things that you have to contend with. Yeah. That that's what I think part of the the issue is it's not that he's saying something where you can just dismiss it out of hand like oh please. No, you're like, "Oh, I have to actually contend with this issue." And if I don't contend with this issue, I've actually um am ignoring something that demands uh my attention. Uh, and you know, because I just don't want to deal with it. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm walking away from that because it seems too complex. And I think you know, one of the things that Nietzsche does is that he forces you to deal with issues that oftentimes you have decided to either ignore or you've not been made aware of, and mm-hmm. then you have to sort of dig in. It doesn't stop him from being wrong. It just means that is an important issue for us to be able to wrestle with and to, and to do it a little bit fearlessly. Like the other thing is, man, that's really hard, and it could do something to the way in which I think the world or how the world is formed right now. And I, I don't want to deal with that, right? You, sometimes you want to just ignore things that could be possible defeaters of your worldview. And I think what we were wanting to say is like, no, 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 you should contend with them. You should confront them um, because they're actually going to be in the long run um, radically value, ex- valuable experiences because we think what we want is the truth to win out. And so this kind of engagement becomes radically necessary. 
because we believe that the truth will win out. Right. And we want to conform ourselves to the ways in which we think the world is actually real and true. Yeah. I I think about how um, reading these texts when I was a student and and respecting these texts when I was a student um, has allowed me to just respect others that I disagree with in the world. Um, Learning how to listen to an author that I disagree with. And by listen, I mean, you know, read and then discuss and, and throw ideas around and kick the tires of their argument. Um, Being able to do that in a classroom setting in college has actually enabled me to be way more, um, yeah, to, to listen so much better to others that I disagree with and not necessarily adopt their ideas. And that's, that's the other thing is like, I think, students conflate, you know, listening to somebody I disagree with or, or really giving them an opportunity to present their case as, well, you're just going to agree with them at the end. Like if you engage with them in that way, then they're just going to convince you and, and you need to not even engage with them. It's like, no, like I can listen to them. I can respect them and they might persuade me in small ways, or maybe they're, they'll persuade me completely. It just kind of depends on the topic at hand. But I think reading authors like this gave me the ability to do that in a way that I never expected that I'd be able to do that when I would graduate from college. I think the temptation um, is to be intellectually isolationist because it feels safer. And what we've come to discover is that securing yourself um, in such a way where you're not confronting other ideas in the long run is going to be do more harm than actually good because you are eventually going to be in a situation where um, views that you have not yet considered are going to be foisted upon you and you won't know what it means to actually contend with them in a way that one respects them and and is actually able to engage them at a level that enables you to navigate through those problems well thanks guys this has been a really fun conversation i appreciate you guys chatting with me today um Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on Opening Question.